we're, we are obviously talking about guilt today, and um, so I want you to turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 6 in just a, a few moments here, but uh, if you were to look on Wikipedia, there is uh, just some, some brief stuff about guilt, and the reason why I would go there, it's not necessarily a, a scholarly resource, but we want to see what our culture has to say about guilt. And so a few things that I pulled out here uh, from Wikipedia says this, uh, guilt is a cognitive or an emotional experience that occurs when a person realizes or believes accurately or not that he or she has compromised his or her own standards of conduct or has violated a moral standard and bears significant responsibility for that violation. It's closely related to the concept of remorse. There's a gal by the name of uh, Alice Miller, a Swiss psychologist, who claims that many people suffer all their lives from this oppressive feeling of guilt, the sense of not having lived up to their parents' expectations. Wow. No argument can overcome these guilt feelings, for they have their beginnings in life's earliest period, and from that they derive their intensity. Sigmund Freud believed this. He believed that, there, uh, that guilt was an obstacle of an unconscious sense. And he said, as the most powerful of all obstacles to recovery. He said that guilt is the most powerful of all obstacles to recovery when it comes to our psyche, how we operate, how we live. Guilt is seen as one of the biggest motivators of psychological disorders. It's not the only one, but it is seen in that way. It's been seen that way for many, many years. In addition to this, it says this, individuals high in psychopathy lack any true sense of guilt or remorse for harm that they may have caused others. Instead, they rationalize their behavior, blame someone else, or deny it outright. A person with psychopathy has a tendency to be harmful to his or herself and to others. So if you lack any type of guilty feeling this morning, then you might be a psychopath. So either you have guilt, or you have some very serious problems, right? I don't mean to make light of mental illness. So if there are folks, and we do know that there are folks in our midst that are suffering from mental illness, I want you to know from the very beginning that you are not looked down upon here, and we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're with us. In fact, many of you may even be on some sort of medication. One of our firefighters um, recently uh, said something to me which I thought was very wise. Um, he gave me a growth area, I like to say, and, uh, but, it, but it, was, it, was, it was well taken. He said he experiences many people who should be using their medication and who have decided not to take it, and he ends up in contact with them in our society through very difficult circumstances. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're either on any kind of medication for any such thing, I want you to know, first of all, that you're loved and that Jesus loves you and that we're glad that you're here and that you're not looked down upon because all of us have our own set of problems. But... um, Even more than that, I want to tell you this, that if you're on some kind of medication, I want to encourage you only through a 
a consultation with a psychologist or a doctor of some sort, and through, hopefully, through the counsel of a Christian counselor or a, uh, a really good pastor, um, uh, um, should you uh, perhaps think about even uh, coming off of that medication, because there's many, many people who should remain on that because of uh, serious illness. And so I just want to say that in the beginning, but guilt in our society is related to all kinds of problems. And the question is this, which Sigmund Freud and this gal Alice Miller and what Wikipedia is kind of expressing is that it's a major problem. And there's been many, many people over the years who have said, uh, we can't figure out how to get rid of this, or that's just a part of what your parents have implemented within you. That's just an issue that you're bringing uh, along board. But at the same time, we also know this, and that is that people who have serious problems, psychopaths are people who experience no remorse for their actions. And so there's this kind of good side to guilt that restrains society, but then there's this bad side which kind of uh, is killing society. And it's causing all kinds of issues. And so people go through all types of things where they're, they're trying to figure out how to manage their guilt. They're going through guilt management. And so we'll use medication and we'll say, okay, you should be on medication and you should be on medication, you should be on medication. The, the numbers and the statistics are staggering as far as how many Americans alone are on antidepressant, uh, antidepressants, I cannot talk this morning, um, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and things of, of that nature. It's just there's so many of us who seem to suffer from this, and so we're trying to manage our guilt through things like that if we're not seriously ill. But then we also try to self-medicate through the things that we're involved with. We use, misuse prescription medication. Uh, there's uh, illegal drug use. There's legal drug use now, or very shortly to be so in Oregon probably, at least in Washington it is. We can become obsessed with sex to a point where we're medicating ourselves with misusing sex. We can become obsessed with all types of things perhaps trying to atone for the things that we've done in the past or, or this impending realization that something's wrong. And many of us have been in this place in life where we say, I feel disgusted with where I've been and I feel disgusted with what my life has looked like and I feel like I need a change, but I can't seem to get there. And you could go to the psychologist and he might tell you one thing or you could go to a counselor and they would tell you another thing or you could go to a church and they'd tell you, you just need to live better or you go to your friends and they could tell you, you don't even need to worry about that or you could, you could go in all different kinds of places. And so there's this philosophy, there's this viewpoint, there are all of these things that are interacting with our lives and the question is, who is right? Who is right? And I want to proclaim to you this morning what I believe to be true, have seen in my life, Tim, who, by the way, is my brother, um, uh, also, and many, many people in our church have been people who have been released from the guilt and the sense of impending wrath, if you will, that says that there is trouble coming in my life and I don't know what to do with it. And I am a troubled person. And I have issues going on in my life. And so I am, we're looking at this in uh, Colossians chapter 2. But before I get there, a couple of things. Why do we have guilt? Tim brought up a great passage from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6, which says this. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That is a great descriptor of what guilt really is. I know what I've done and it's always in front of me. It's always there. And then David says this, verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This passage says this, God is always the most offended party. This is what D.A. Carson says. He says, God is always the most offended party. So you may be thinking to yourself, like, I feel like I'm, I'm feeling very guilty about the, the way that I've sinned against my fellow man. But here's the thing, is that God is always the most offended party. Because we are not acting in relation to the image of God that's been reflected upon us through our creation. And as we stray from who God truly is, what happens is this, is that there's impending guilt. There's guilt, there's more guilt, there's more guilt. And what's going on is this, is that we know in our heart of hearts that we have offended God. Now you might be asking, why do we know this? Where does this come from? Romans 2, 14 and 16 says this, for when the Gentiles, that's everybody, that's all of us here, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And that's just basically saying this, that people who didn't necessarily even grow up with the Ten Commandments, you know, a couple of these psychologists uh, imply this idea that it, it came from their parents. But in reality, it comes from another source that there's something even deeper. They don't have the law. They may not even be studying the Bible. They didn't necessarily grow up in America, perhaps, or, or what have you. But there's still this sense of guilt because it's common throughout all of humanity. It says this in verse 15 of Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus what's being shown is this is that God's law is written on our hearts you could search and search and use all kinds of human philosophy or human tradition or all of these things to try to figure out where's my guilt coming from. You could try to pinpoint that. You could try to excuse yourself from that guilt and say, you know what, it doesn't matter that I did that. You could try to excuse your own shame by saying, you know what, it, it's really not that big of a deal that it was done to me. But we know that doesn't work. How do we excuse our guilt? How do we get over it? And why do we have this? It's because it's been written on our hearts. They show that the work of the law, God's law, is written on our hearts. And so the question is this, what do we do with our guilt? How do we expose it and get rid of it? How do we get through that? So let's get to our passage finally here, which says this. Chapter 2, verse 6 of Colossians. 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, psychology, your friends, whoever, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, when you look at this passage, you may think to yourself, it really doesn't say a whole lot about guilt in here, but I want you to know that this passage really speaks to us, especially our generation, uh, us as a people group right here and right now. And the reason is this, is that he says here in the, the first verse that we read, verse six, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so what this means here is that there is a point in a Christian's life where they have come to God. And the reason why they've come to God, the only way to get in is through a realization that there is bad news. The gospel is often called the good news. Now, when we talk to people about the good news and we say, have you heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Many times, people today at least, uh, don't understand what we're talking about because we have no context for sin. Now, 50 years ago, uh, when the Ten Commandments were uh, quite prevalent in our society, uh, many, many years ago at the inception of our country, our country was uh, brought forth, at least with the scriptures in mind, even people that didn't believe in the scriptures would submit to that way of thinking. They would think along those lines. And so there was this idea of sin that was inherent in who we were. And you could say, have you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that he saves you from sin? And people would say, uh, yay, <laughs> yes, I want, I want that, I want to be a part of that. But today, people don't have a concept of sin. What they have a concept of is they have a concept of guilt. And so when we talk about this idea of, as you, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What this means is this, is that when you come to Jesus Christ, to be your savior. What you're asking him for is you're saying this, you're saying, I cannot be as good as I'm supposed to be. I cannot be as good as what the law that's written on my heart says that I should be. I have this sense of guilt. I have this sense of shame. I know that there's a holy God and that he is real. I see that throughout creation, that these things can't just happen. Childbirth wouldn't just happen in a pool of soup. 
And so I know that somehow that there's a being out there and that all of this stuff could not just be here and that I have a mind and that I can think and I know that somehow in my heart of hearts that I've offended this God. God is always the most offended party. And so the way that we receive Christ is first understanding the bad news that there is really and truly a holy God whom we've offended. But the good news is this, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in bodily form as fully God and fully man. And he came to earth and he walked in our shoes and he spent time with us and he was rejected, he was criticized, he was ultimately beat, spit upon, a crown of thorns placed on his head and it's historical that he was crucified. He went to the grave and there are witnesses who saw him after and who realized that he had been resurrected. And there are many, many, many disciples who have seen him and known him. But the way that we come to Christ, the way that we've received him is through repentance and saying, I agree with God about what he's said about me. I agree with God that I've offended him and that I need him. And so I need his salvation. And so what Paul is arguing for right here, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, is he's saying... The way that you continue the Christian life is the same way that you began the Christian life. Now, why does Paul need to say this? He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and, being, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Now, what he's saying there is he's saying, you've been rooted in the faith, but there's something that needs to continue happening. The words that he uses would say this, being built up in him and being established in the faith just as you were taught. So the gospel isn't just for the beginning of your Christian life, but the gospel is for your entire life. There's a continual succession of things that are happening within your life as you deal with your guilt once for all with Jesus Christ and he saves you and you are always saved. You will never be lost from him. But the way that we live the Christian life out and the way that we glorify God with our lives is that we live in line with the gospel and we don't just move on to something else. Now, what is the something else that we could move on to? Let's look at it right here. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, I think this is very relevant to us. I've already stated many of these things, but you really need to see this, that there's many different ways that you could look at your life. You could say, you know, I received Jesus Christ and that is my sacred time with God. I'm, I, I go to church, that's sacred. And then the rest of my life, I live in a different way. And you may not even be living a particularly immoral life, but, but the truth is oftentimes we move on to something else. We were saved by grace. It's not through anything that we've done. You can't be good enough to get in with God. And so what has to happen is that God has to die for you. But here's the thing. We think, okay, God died for me here through Jesus Christ, but now I'm going to move on to something else and I better be good. And so the feeling is this. Like, I, we think that God is saying to us, hey, I died for you. You better be good. Or I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. 
You better be good. You, you better not do that. I mean, I have to threaten my children like this sometimes. Like, dude, I am going to, you know. And, but God doesn't work that way. God says this, I sent the son. I sent the son, and the son dies. And he goes to the grave, and he's resurrected. And that's once for all. And I wasn't just intending for you to just begin this way, but I was intending for you to be being built up and being established and to continue on in the gospel. That's why we talk about the gospel being the central point of the Bible. The gospel is the point. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus and what he will do on the cross. The New Testament is at the point of Jesus and on the cross. And then the outworking of that, pointing back to Jesus did this on the cross. Jesus did this on the cross. That's what the Bible's about. The Bible is about the gospel. And so when we commingle uh, gospel with Oprah, things get weird, right? When we commingle Oprah, or, oh no, uh, when I switched gospel and Oprah in my mind. Okay, when we, when we commingle uh, the gospel with Dr. Phil, or some new thing that we came up with, or when we commingle the gospel with psychology sometimes, because God, God has revealed good things to people who don't know him. There's things that are true within psychology, even from people that don't believe in a real God. But when we commingle the gospel with psychology or philosophy or human tradition, here's a good one. When we say, you know, Jesus saved me, but I better, I better keep it up. I better, I, I, I better make a good showing here. When somehow we turn uh, our Christianity into moralism, when we change Christianity into moralism and we say, you know, Christianity is all about living a good life. Some of you came into church today because you said, I've been living a bad life and I want to start living a good life. But here's the thing. I just, I, I want to let out a secret right now. And the secret is this, that you can find good morals in lots of religions. There's lots of good people. In fact, there are people in other religions that are better than I am. I know that's a shock. But there are people who are better at living life than I am. There's people that are in other religions that are, that are better at living life than you are. You can find good morals in any place. And so how can I sit here and claim that there's only one way to God and that this is the only way? Because there's lots of religions that are teaching morals. And so here's the thing. Christianity isn't about having good morals. Now... Because you know Jesus and you have a relationship with him, you may get good morals, and I hope that you do because it shows that you know Jesus. But becoming a Christian isn't dependent on good morals, and continuing in Jesus Christ is not about having good morals. That's not what sustains you. What sustains you is the fact that you were saved by Jesus Christ in the beginning. As you received him, continue. I received him through repentance and trusting in him. And so I need to continue in that on through my life. Let's continue through this. Now, what he's going to say is this. Uh, why should we not turn from anything other than Christ? Let me give you some theological examples here. This is what Paul is going to tell us in verse 9. For or because in him, in Jesus Christ, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells. There was a, a poll that was recently taken of many, many Christian people, and there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians that do not believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And you know what that does? It diminishes the way that Jesus works in your life. It can cripple you because you don't believe what the Bible says. Because the Bible says this, that because in him, the whole fullness of God, deity, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he's fully God and he's fully man. And he's setting us up for something. And he says, you have been filled in him. A few verses prior, I believe it was last week, we talked about it is Christ in you, and that is the hope of glory. But right here, he's saying this, that you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. But when we have a low view of God and a high view of self, problems happen. When you have a, a low view of God and, and a, a low view of Jesus, problems happen because you're elevating yourself and you're saying, I matter a little bit more. Now, you may, it, it may be balanced a little bit like this, like Jesus, Jesus is pretty good or he's, he's pretty much God, but he's not exactly God. What, what you're doing is, you, is you're, you're bringing yourself up to his level. And the thing that you're missing is this, is that he is God. And you are in him. Now, what does that even mean? When it says that you're in him. In my uh, previous life, um, not that we believe in reincarnation, but uh, prior to pastoring a church, I'll just be clear, um, I was in construction. And so when you'd go to a lumber yard, in fact, this used to be a lumber yard that I would come to many times, and the desk many, many years ago was right over kind of near that corner, and then it was kind of over there. It's now where we have all of our food and drinks out in the lobby, uh, just so you know. But I would come into this lumber yard, and depending on the company that I was working for, I would say, um, they would ask, who is this for? And I would say, this is for such and such a construction company. And what I'm saying to them is that I'm in this company. I am a part of this company, and so when I come to this lumberyard, it enables me to purchase things on their account. And so what this is saying right here is it's saying this, uh, for because in him, the whole fullness of the deity, uh, uh, of deity, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him. You're in him, and he is above all things. He is the boss, if you will, of all things everywhere because he's God. He's made all of creation. He's made me. And so you might say, uh, who died and made him king? No one. He already was. He was already in charge. And so when Paul says this, he says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And the reason why is this because he's the only one who is in charge. Jesus is the one. Jesus is, is the boss, and I'm in him. And so that when I walk into the lumberyard of life, what I get to say is this. I'm with him. I'm in his account. He's paying for this. 
It's like you're going to a restaurant with dad and saying, uh, he's paying. He, he's paying. You, you, know, you know when you go out to dinner with uh, at least a good parent anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm, I see you. Um, uh, you know that dad's going to pay, probably. At least you hope so. But Jesus is such a good dad because you never have to hope. You always get to know. It's always on dad's account. It's always his account. I don't have to wait and see if this is going to be paid for. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so continue in him. You received him in this way, and you received him as the greatest dad that ever was. You received him in this way, and when you received him as that, you you put trust in him, and you had faith in him. And he's saying this, don't stop now. Don't end this faith that you have in me. Don't stop trusting me. But continue in me. Continue to see me as the one who is here to pay. Now, I bet you probably didn't think that we were going to talk about circumcision this morning. But um, I I normally like to say, if you don't know what circumcision is, Google it. Wait a minute, don't do that. So I'll just get, get that out of the way. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, what he's talking about here is he's talking about Jewish ritual. That perhaps in his day, people had taken this Jewish ritual that God had required of his people in Old Testament times. And they were saying this, that after the point of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, they were saying, you should still do that. But what happened was this, is that when Jesus came, he fulfilled circumcision as a sign of being God's people. And so what Paul's referring to here is he's saying, he's using an example from their culture that's associated with, in essence, kind of uh, worshiping God or appeasing God uh, through bodily purification. And he's saying this, don't take on religious rituals. Don't take on religious rituals or going to church or doing more good than bad helping the old lady across the street, or saying a prayer every once in a while, or helping someone out, none of these are going to help you out. And what he's saying is this, he's saying, this is a religious ritual, and if you are adding something onto Jesus Christ alone, you're adding something that doesn't belong. Because the way that we got to God And the way that we are in him is not through our own efforts, through some kind of religious ritual. But he's essentially saying this, that what happened was this. He says, in him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not a literal one. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And what he's saying is this, that Christ vicariously took care of all the rituals that need to be done. Christ vicariously, in your place, took care of every ritual that needs to happen. He took care of all of it. There's no amount of centering prayer or quiet time or reading my Bible or prayer or anything like that that gets me into him. There's no amount of that that's going to make me such a good person that that God's finally going to accept me. He says this, that his circumcision was made without hands and it was vicarious and it was for us. And what happens is this, now the word of God, it teaches us who Jesus is. 
And so it doesn't save us, but it helps us grow in him. Obviously, we're reading it this morning. It helps us understand that we need to continue looking back at him. And so what this means is this, is that there's nothing that you can do. There's no amount of being religious. There's no amount of spiritual purification that happens by you. It happens for you as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him. And so verse 12 says this, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What he's saying there is this. When you forget, when you forget that when Christ went into the grave, and you as a believer in Jesus Christ were baptized. So you were being buried together. Jesus is so good to us because he wants us to sense what happened. Baptism is all about us being pictured with Christ so that we have this sense of I'm going into the grave. When I go into the water, I'm going into the grave and I'm being buried with Christ. And he says, look at your baptism, having been buried with him in baptism. And then when you come out of the water, hopefully you have a good pastor and he does bring you up out of the water. He says, you were also raised with him. Now the baptism doesn't, doesn't literally kill you or literally raise you. It doesn't save you, in other words. What it is, is this. He says, through faith in the powerful working of God. What this means is this, is that if you're struggling with guilt as a Christian, the thing that you're not realizing is this, is God's power, God's ability to save you, God's ability to overcome everything. What you're struggling to understand is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He went to the cross. And he died for you. You're struggling to see the power of God and the truth that when we trust that Jesus Christ went to the cross and ultimately to the grave and then was resurrected, we are failing to trust in the gospel continually. Remember, I'm not just receiving that once, but I'm always looking back to the gospel. I'm always looking to it and I'm saying, no, Jesus went to the cross. He went to the grave. I experienced this with my baptism through faith, and it's through the powerful working of God that I'm able to identify with him in this way. So he says this next. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, just look at this for just a second. Remember what I said, that we don't have a concept of sin, but we do have a concept of guilt. Nobody really wants to talk about sin. Oh, that's all about morals, but oh, people are guilty. People really feel guilty. Got to give them more medication. Got to give them this. Got to, you know, got to drink it off, sleep it off, whatever. We don't have a concept of that. And so what he's saying is this, and you who were dead in your guilt. 
You are dead in your guilt, understanding that there's something impending on me. I've offended God. I've got guilt going on. It's an indicator that I sin, but guilt is the outworking of that real sin in my life. And he says, and the uncircumcision, the impurity of your flesh, your guilt is an indicator of this fact. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now this is just like a, you know, a fight song. God did this. God made me alive. Somebody should write this down, right? Okay. God is the one who's done this. And here, verse two, by canceling the record of debt, this is actually verse 14, verse 2 of my song. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, why is this important? And it's because of this. You have this inner fight song where you're going, yeah, 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 by canceling the record of debt. Why would you even say that? Why would you ever want to talk about that? Because your guilt is an indicator of the debt that you owe God. Your guilt's an indicator of the debt that you owe God. And why is it talking about you know, the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them and him? Because of this. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. Or Mr. Satan. And he wants you to feel guilty. That's what he wants. You know what he does? You know what he's called? He's called the accuser. And that's for good reason. Because he wants to sit there in your ear and, he's, and he wants to say this. There is no way that you could be forgiven for that. And this is what he'll do. He'll come back and he'll remind you. He'll say, hey, uh, remember like when you received Christ? Remember that? Yeah, that was pretty good. But you've gone too far now. You've, you, you haven't connected with God in the longest time. Or you've been in a wrong relationship for way too long. Or you've been in the midst of all of these things. And there's no way. I remember driving to church many years ago and I was serving in a ministry and I remember driving to church and I remember thinking to myself I screwed up this week I screwed up this week and I probably screwed it was it was again and I was driving there and I was like God who am I who am I to be serving in any capacity in this realm who am I and I, and I remember, I'm, I'm halfway there and I'm just going, I'm, my heart is hurting and I'm sensing this guilt. And I'm sensing this guilt. And you know, I think the accuser was sitting there just saying, you're on your way to serve. There's no way that you, that you have any way. You don't have a leg to stand on. There's no reason why you should be doing this. There's no way. You can't do this. You can't do this. And I felt this little knock on my heart. Hey, Matt. It was never you in the first place who saved you. It was never you. You didn't get yourself into this. So your sin right now doesn't get you out of it. 
There's nothing that you can do right now, Matt, that's going to take you out of my love. There's nothing you can do. You know what I experienced right there? As I received Christ Jesus the Lord, God was gracious in speaking to me and saying, so continue in me. You didn't get yourself in, you can't get yourself out. And so you know what Christians need? They need a fight song, something like maybe a worship song that talks about canceling the record of debt. No, Mr. Satan. You know what's happened? By the way, it's way worse than you're making it out to be. I'm way worse than that, Satan. <laughs> I not only have no leg to stand on, I deserve death. And indeed, I am dead in my trespasses and sins without Jesus Christ. I don't have any kind of a leg to stand on. But guess what? Jesus went to the cross and he canceled the record of debt that stood against me with its legal demands. And he set that aside and he nailed it to the cross and he disarmed you. And he took every bit of authority away that you think that you have in my life. And I am his and he is mine and I'm in him. And there's nothing that's taking me away from Jesus Christ. There's no sin that I can do. There's nothing. He died for me once and I revel in the gospel day in and day out and I look at it and I look at it and I look at it and that's because he went to the cross not just for one sin and not just for, for past sins but for all sins for all time. He went to the cross for me and so therefore I'm done with you. Can we clap for that? Come on. Yeah. What's he say? With thanksgiving, he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He's not saying, okay, every now and then get thankful. I came to church and now let's get thankful. Yes. No, he's saying, you walk into church and you are thankful. You're saying, yes, Jesus, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm abounding in thanksgiving because of what he's done for me. How do you overcome guilt? You never stop being thankful. You don't start being thankful when you start to feel guilty. No, you abound in thanksgiving and you overcome guilt in that way. And that's what Jesus does for us by having, going, having gone to the cross I was listening to this song. I was on my way home from uh, speaking at a retreat last night, and I just heard this one phrase from a song by uh, Ed Sheeran called Photograph. And he says, loving can hurt sometime. It's the only thing that makes us feel alive. And I don't know why. It just stuck out to me. And I thought, is love really the only emotion that makes us feel alive? And this morning I was getting ready, and I was thinking, you know what? It is love that makes us feel alive but it's not my love, it's Jesus' love for me. Until you realize that Jesus was hurt because he loves you so much, until you realize that Jesus was hurt and more than hurt, that he was killed so that you could be alive, you will never really understand how to escape your guilt 
Would you understand this with me? That the creator of the universe has made it so. He, he's such a good God. He allowed his law to be written on our hearts. Why? So that we wouldn't be a bunch of remorseless psychopaths. Can you imagine if all of us were psychopaths? That would be, it'd be uncomfortable, right? But he's such a good God that he's written his law on our hearts. And he's allowed us to know it. But you know what else he's done? He's allowed us to experience guilt. Oh, the grace of knowing that I'm wrong so that I can find the one who is right. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that this morning that we would have people that revel in the gospel abounding in thanksgiving. That God, that the way that they receive you is the way that they will continue. And so Lord, I know that this morning that there are folks in here that have never given their life to you. They've never been, uh, they've never truly encountered you. And so this morning they may be sitting and just kind of under, trying to figure out, do I want this? Is this where I want to be? And so Jesus, I'm praying that this morning that they would truly make a decision to receive you by faith. Lord, that they would trust that you are the God of the universe, that the, the full deity dwells in Jesus Christ, and he is God, and that he can save me. Lord, I pray that they would believe that, that they would confess that, understanding that they've offended you, that you're the most offended party, and that they need to be reconciled with you. So Lord, we pray for that, but Lord, we pray for the Christians in this room. Lord, if we were to make any kind of an impact on our city, for your glory. Lord, it's going to come through knowing, loving, and celebrating your gospel and how you canceled the debt that we have on the cross. So Lord, this morning I pray that you would do an incredible work in our lives as we know that you've already done, but Lord, we, we ask that you'd continue that through the power of your spirits. In your name we pray. Amen.